0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Jari Saramaki, professor of computational science at Aalto University, Finland. His book, How to Write a Scientific Paper, an academic self-help guide for PhD students, was self-published in 2018. We all have our own little habits when it comes to writing. Some of us would be very reluctant to share that the words don't hit print until we've touched the nose of a childhood teddy bear, or that we won't sit to write unless we've yoga-breathed for ten minutes. Be that as it may, those are habits bordering on the compulsive. If they work for you, fine, keep them. Writing is compulsive in its own way, so if I've described you, you're doing well. But how about bigger habits, like the sort which may serve more than just the compulsiveness of the writing act, the sorts of habits that will actually help a lot of people write more efficiently and more effectively? Are there such habits? And if yes, what are they? Well, after reading Jari Saramaki's How to Write a Scientific Paper, I'm convinced that such bigger habits exist, and I'm going to presume as well under which general category these habits can be subsumed, and that category is habits of mind. Now, a lot's been written about what should be going on in a writer's mind when writing. You should just let your thoughts flow. You should amass text and feel you've accomplished something. You should be executing an outline in your every turn of phrase. You should never put off to tomorrow what you can do today. You should. You'd best. You really have to. And this hail of prescriptivism, Helen Sword spoke sense when she said, and I'm paraphrasing, every writer needs to find out for themselves the process that works for the task that they have. I believe that. But I also believe, again, after reading Jari Saramaki's How to Write a Scientific Paper, I also believe Jari. I mean, just hear what he has to say. Most of us struggle with every paper we write. Science is hard, and so is writing. Together they are harder. If you are a PhD student, you can add in a lack of experience as a researcher and as a writer. And when you combine all that with the usual time pressure, it is no wonder that the blank document in front of you looks like the north face of Mount Everest. That is flawless in logic. Flawless in logic, too, is Jari's proposed answer to the problem. Plan. P-L-A-N. Plan. People don't climb mountains without planning ahead of the climb, so why should people be writing scientific papers without planning ahead of the scribbling? Again, There is a lot of wisdom in the advice that each writer must find their own way. A lot of wisdom. But Jari, speaking as a scientist and to all scientists, reminds us how finding things, like a way, like a pen, like an answer, like a reference, like a cup of coffee, finding things demands time. And time is, well, the one thing, the one resource that no scientist has. And there's no funding body who can provide time, no mentor who can teach time, and no computer code that can digiti-create time. Time is science, because the more clock you have, the more results you have. So perhaps the strong suggestion or really recommendation-like command that a scientist first plan and outline before scribbling and drafting, perhaps this way of doing things already is the way that every lab and field researcher actually wants and needs. Jari Saramaki, in his book, How to Write Scientific scientific Paper, certainly convinces. Because again, just pursuing the logic of planning stage, writing stage, Jari says a plan enables you to get work done, even if you've just got 15 minutes between steps in a lab procedure or steps to the next lecture hall. Listen to what he has to say. If you have no plan, it takes all of those 15 minutes just to remember where the paper was supposed to be going. But when writing with a plan, you can just have a look at your notes and immediately start turning those notes into sentences. This way, you become more productive. Okay, sign me up. It's great. The beauty of the logic is, like all beauty, simple. And to the scientists versed in logic, that is, all of them, Jari's imposition on your erratic writing habits will go unnoticed, and so be no imposition at all, because where you'd been writing with your mind racing, but your fingertips resting on the keys you will now be writing with your mind enjoying the fruits of good habits and your paper communicating science with clarity, structure, and excitement. So let's begin today's episode. Jari Saramaki and how to write a scientific paper. Jari, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Thanks a lot, and thanks for having me
0: um, Mentoring and mentorship, those are the opening words and ideas of today's episode. That's where I'd like to begin. Because when I picked up your book, How to Write a Scientific Paper, and read the subtitle in particular, An Academic Self-Help Guide for PhD Students, and then read the dedication for my students, (laughs) and read as well the frankness with which you talked about the common struggle of all PhDs to learn how to write, and the fact that, of course, so many mentors and so many professors are just too strapped for time to be able to give them the support that they might need. And when we think today about how important the fo- or the focus that is falling on mentorship and mentoring, um, another great series has come out with uh, Nature's Working Scientist on the topic. It just becomes apparent that the work that you're doing and the, the work that is also, has also produced this book is clearly very good mentoring. So I, I would like to kick off with that question. Can you, can you tell us something about your views on mentoring and, and what parts that writing plays in that, that mentoring? hmm
1: Okay, so um I think I could possibly view myself a bit like the producer of some pop record. you know there's a band, they write songs, they come up with the ideas, but then there's someone who's sort of experienced and, and knows how how to how to do this, know how to knows how to structure things that helps them achieve it. And I think with my students I sort of have the same, same point of view that that they are the ones who are smart. They are the ones who produce the results. They are the ones who do much of the science. And it's sort of my my task is to help them uh, do it. And uh, to that end, I need to be able to give them some tools, right? So so there there needs to be a box of tools that, you have to have methods, you need to have sort of mathematical computational knowledge in my field, and then you need to write stuff, because that's always the end product of of any research project. And I sort of found myself in a position where I know the maths, I know I know the methods, I teach them, but when it comes to writing, I'm like, mm, okay, but, but, but what do I do here? How do I give them some sort of a, some sort of sort of a roadmap that that uh, they can use to help them get to the position where they have a finished paper that has been written on the basis of their results. And that's where this whole project basically started. I started first, I, I think I gave I came up with a deck Deco slides and then I gave a couple of lectures on the topic, and then then I started writing a blog that eventually. Turned into a book because all the chapters of the book have uh, have some sort of early draft versions in the blog, and that's yeah. The, the whole whole point there was that I need to be able to give my students some tools, and I didn't actually, I wasn't too good with those tools myself. So first, I had to figure out how to write, and in order to be able to teach my students how to write, with the emphasis on the word how to. So it's not like a some sort of an academic point of view on on how scientific papers should look like but but rather a very hands-on approach that look here you are sitting in front of a computer what do you do next how do you, how do you go on from that so that's
0: something that like how-to that That is. Is, is 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 very good job of emphasizing that because indeed the, the book um, and your advice in it is really going to help the person who is now sitting at the lab bench or sitting at their office and they've got all the results. In fact, this is the scenario you imagine in the book. Okay, what next? <laughs> We're not dealing here with uh, theory. Um, there is clearly theory behind it. Somebody has put a lot of thought of in, into, into this book, you. Um, but th- th- this is going to really help people right? I mean, th- that that much is certainly clear. I-, I would like to come back, though, to your, your amazing... Analogy here to a, a producer of a band, let's say, who enables um, people to be doing what it is that they're meant to be doing. In that case, singing. In this case, communicating the science. And you and you separate separate out there very interesting areas. So the met- the maths, the in, in your case, the maths, the methods and the tools, which more abstractly might be the subject knowledge, the technique. And then, let's say the communication, or even soft skills. Some people might even put it into that category. And it's very interesting that it, it is in the actual studies that you get usually the first two, right? You get the subject knowledge, you get the technique, but the soft skills, or the communication skills, they're just sort of left hanging, aren't they? They are, and that's that's
1: something that I've been always wondering about. Why why does it have to be that way? Because yeah because it's it's really such a big gap we take dozens of courses on on the subject matter and and on methods and and on how to do research but there are very few courses on offer on how to actually then communicate this and while there are books available it's not it's not a very wide literature there are not like hundreds of books on how to do this and it's YouTube is not full of videos. So so somehow, yeah, somehow I think my yeah, why I wrote this book was partially because I I just saw that there's a big gap here. There's something that students need, but they are not given it. So yes, I and I don't know why this is so. Why 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 is it missing from from the toolbox that that students get when they when they take courses and and go through their curricula at the university.
0: It's worth, it is really something that's worth thinking out loud about, isn't it? Because I I have yet to speak to an editor at a journal, uh, to a scientist. I've yet to have uh, my own people in my writing courses at the university here in Heidelberg. Uh, I've really yet to meet anyone who said, now we really don't need much help on writing. You know, usually yeah. it's it's exactly the opposite. It's like a, a, a scream for yes, please, yes. and how. And yeah. your book clearly fits right into that area where people are getting what they need from, from you. Um, I, I, I wonder if there's anything that we could tease out now as to why it gets neglected.
1: Yeah, I wish I could answer that. So um, probably at least in in fields of science like I work in, it's the people who both design the curricula and teach the courses might not might not be able to teach writing themselves. That's one because it's it's sort of yeah it's there's there a sort of a history so that that the professors like me who are teaching students have not have not taken those writing classes either. So it's pretty difficult for us to... to it would be pretty difficult for us to give writing classes or design uh, parts of the curricula so that it's about communication. I think there's, it, it has to do with this tradition that that, that we kind of repeat, we repeat similar curricula as, as we... We took ourselves when we were young. Maybe it's something like that. So there's a history, and it's it's sort of just this is how it has always been. That might be part of it, and that oh, that makes it much harder for us to to try to change it because we are not experts. We write, but we often don't have any formal structure or any formal formal yeah. knowledge about how how you do it, and that's. Once again, this was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I wanted to figure this out myself. So I I needed some structure. I I wanted to have, have some sort of a checklist for myself, not only for my students. That I could then, of course, teach my students as well.
0: And uh, you've succeeded at that, and I want to go into some of those details, but I'd, I'd like to pursue this question a, a little bit more, and I think your answer is very much on to something. It's something that I've heard also from educational theorists, that the typical approach for somebody who is then entering into a new career as a professor or even a postdoc is clearly – I mean, what else would they do? Is clearly to do what they had experienced also during their studies – and as you say if, if if there was no training there then they're untrained to teach the communication skills and they don't know wouldn't know where to begin i, I would wonder if if it isn't really time that you know the moment hasn't come that we short circuit this and make clear to you know administrations that a communication expert needs to shadow needs to be involved in labs as well with professors and postdocs so that this knowledge just sort of spreads about throughout the entire group. Because one of the major obstacles, it seems, to that approach has always been that, okay, well, you have a background in modern languages, you have a background in rhetoric and composition studies, but you're not a scientist. You can't do mm. anything over there. Mm. Mm. I, 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 I tend to disagree. I
1: disagree as well. I mean, there's there's,
0: yeah, probably this is, this it, this is a
1: bit like the fence between certain sciences that you are you are say you are a mathematician then therefore you can't understand anything about this topic or vice versa. So so I think it's yeah sciences tend to be somehow yeah you know, they tend to build walls around them for for some reason and maybe this this sort of softer skills versus harder mathematical skills type of division comes from that that we like to yeah <laughs> we like to I don't know from what scientists and labs and universities or or departments protect themselves from when they build these walls. But yeah, it happens for, for some reason that I haven't entirely figured out
0: Yeah. Big, big questions, tough questions, (laughs) Um, but, 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 but interesting. I mean, to just get this, uh, to to just air these ideas, because I mean, if we talk about it now, other people might hear about it and also get talking about it. That's, that's how, that's how these things hopefully at some point get solved or improve. Um, But, but let's come very much to um, your approach to how to write. And it was refreshing for me because in my work together with scientists, my background is indeed rhetoric and modern languages, so I'm not a scientist myself, but working together with scientists, I've noticed that what you've done is actually what they are looking for, this Let's have a procedure, as you just said, a sort of checklist, and work through it. In fact, I've I've been asked that, that at certain times. Is there one <laughs> now for somebody coming from you know the humanities? The idea is insane, <laughs> but 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 actually, actually not. Um, and, and I think I would like to just sort of ask you: How is it that you arrived at this procedure, and how would you perhaps globally explain it?
1: Um. Uh, well. I think how I arrived at it was, as I already mentioned, I, I I needed something myself. So I wanted to have a procedure that I can follow. Right, so that, that was the starting point because that's then something that you can teach others as well. But but I, I also, I still struggle with writing and I used to struggle a lot more with writing. And so I sort of, yeah, I thought sort of reflected on the problem that here I sit, I look at my screen, I need to write this paper. This feels very bad. I, I feel pain. Why do I feel that way? Well, usually if you feel that something is difficult, this is something that, that I've learned in general, that usually if you feel that something is difficult, you want to avoid it, there are always reasons for that. And I started looking for those reasons and sort of sort of building, building, building this thing from that. And basically the sort of super... Obvious answer that I arrived at was that this is difficult because I don't know what to write. And while that, that may sound super obvious, then if you if you expand that thought, then that leads to the following thought: that before you write, you need to know what to write. And that leads to planning. So that you have to have some sort of a structure there. And and maybe again again if we draw on this this pop music producer analogy, then if you would want to write a pop song, then then you know that, yeah, you need to have an intro and the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. There, there is a structure that you can follow in in thinking about uh, how to compose it. And I thought that, yeah, I mean, one, one should have something like that. Of course, papers have introduction methods, results, and all that but there's a fine structure there that you need to have something inside all of these boxes that that I, I want to have templates that I can follow I want to have things that I can sort of recycle when writing papers and that that I think was the starting point yes and then then I, I arrived at the whole idea of planning and then I thought that okay what would be the ultimate way of planning a paper, well, you write it abstract, it's abstract first. And then I started doing it. I noticed that, yes, this works. This really works. I started telling all my students to do the same before you write, write the abstract. And this is what I've just done this week as well. So writing a, writing a paper, paper, I started with the abstract. So just 10 lines of text. And then now others can kind of expand that into into something a bit more...
0: Uh, something a bit more that looks a bit more like a paper. I have to say that this this was the first time that I heard advice that the abstract be written first, <laughs> and I I did pause for a moment. I thought <laughs> that might be misguided, but as I got more into your thinking, I realized the wisdom behind it, and then I was reminded of something from completely in a different direction Robert uh, Caro who is the monumental biographer of Lyndon B. Johnson amongst many others he's he's spoken in um, so this would be from the literary corner, he's spoken in the Paris Review and um In the office where the interview was held, there was one wall dominated by a bulletin board. Now, I'm going to just ask for your patience. I'm going to read just a few sentences from this interview because it speaks so directly to what what you're talking about. And I'd I'd like to explore this idea of abstract first. This is what Robert Caro says to one of the um, questions about how he writes and how he plans. He says, I can't start writing a book until I've thought it through and can see it whole in my mind. So before I start writing, I boil the book down to three paragraphs, or two, or one. That's when it comes into view. That process might take weeks. And then I turn those paragraphs into an outline of the whole book. That's what you see up there on the wall now. 27 typewritten pages. That's the fifth volume. Then, with the whole book in mind, I go and I type out an outline of one chapter after another and so on. I'll break it off there. The point is clear, though, and he's talking about a five-volume book, which is a biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, but it just rang so true to me as what you're talking about as well. And this sounds really familiar.
1: This sounds super familiar because I think that you could write, and many people do write, literature by the seats of their pants. So they just. Improvise, they just wing it. They don't know where the story is going. But with science or, or with nonfiction writing I in general, I guess, uh, you need to have a pretty good idea of where you are going in order to get there, right?
0: Yeah, and it, I mean, it's one of those points of. Sort of cross fertilization that you see here. Somebody working in a non-fiction area, which is clearly more, uh, you know, distant from from the sciences, and yet the writing technique still shows mm-hmm. up so clearly uh, that I think that the general advice on leaving the abstract last has probably been motivated by the fact that well, you can't know. Exactly the message you want to include in your abstract until you've figured out the message by doing the whole paper. But but your advice is actually much the opposite. You can't really write your paper very efficiently or effectively unless yeah. you know that message first.
1: Yep, that's that's yeah, that's what I'm saying, and that's why also yeah, and that's why spending a couple of weeks on the abstract or or a couple of weeks on. The stage before the abstract is perfectly fine because you need to go through your results, you need to think what the message is, you need to kind of refine the message, you need to see if all the all the results you have support it and, and and sort of build a bit like a court case that this is what I want to this is what I want to basically say, and I need all the evidence for that. Do I have it? If I have it, okay. Then, how? What would be the story? So, how how should I start it? And then you can encapsulate that as the abstract. So, yep.
0: And I mean, I can already hear some listeners' thoughts uh, <laughs> screaming out loudly that, um, yeah, but the abstract—you you can't write it first and then leave it in that state. And I think. I think you would probably clearly be open to the idea that after having written the paper adjustments can be made adjustments would be made uh, all along but I think what 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 you draw attention to under any circumstances is the importance of the abstract the importance of the abstract coupled together with its title I mean these two parts of the paper get get quite a lot of attention in in your book Yep
1: and and there so yeah, first of all, the point is that it makes your life so much easier. You it's easier to write the paper that you already where you already know where it's going, and this also kind of forces writers to focus on something, right? So because that's uh, among young students, sort of unexperienced uh, writers of science, it's pretty common that 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 they try to. Cram a ton of different results into a paper. So that's especially in, in a field like, like where I work, where you can get, you can have 20 plots and all of them are somehow interesting. And then it's it's easy to write a paper that has 20 plots and that makes no point at all, or makes 20 different points. And you can even get a paper like that accepted. You can always get the paper accepted to some journal, but it's it's highly unlikely that it's going to become a hit. Or or that many people would cite it or read it. It's super difficult to cite papers that that you can't basically you can't remember what they were about, right? So it's much easier to say, hey, there was this paper that 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 said that. X is happening, and then it was written by. So it's it's much 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 more marketable. Is sort of the wrong word because this is not about marketability, but it's a bit more. Yeah, it's a bit more about how contagious a paper is. If if these these bits of information are very very clear and very focused, it's much much more easier to spread the spread the idea than if the paper is very diffuse and contains a lot of results that that don't basically communicate with one another
0: yeah and that and that that's certainly something i've experienced again the let's say the more novice writers the people who are you know in their first two three years of their postdoc the people who are also graduate students as you say, I mean, they, they are this and this seems to be this is also something you draw attention to. This seems to be one of those sort of fundamental issues involved with with science when you go to write it. You've got the output of research, which is one thing, and you've got the communication of that research, which is another thing. You know, I mean, it's we in the humanities have it easier. Our, our output of research is from text, and we put it into text. We're always in text, you know. <laughs> uh, the, the sciences, though, they're in the world, and they need to turn it into the word, you know. I mean, it sounds nice, but it's not easy. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. Yep. And, uh, yes, and this condensing part this is the difficult
1: part, there, I guess, that, that one needs to. It's not enough to have many numbers or many graphs or many any things but one needs to extract some sort of a meaning out of them and then you need to cut some stuff out that's basically yeah that's that's the difficult bit of them
0: yeah yeah and 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 i I love the words that you use and and other people use similar ones i mean story narrative you talk about it being marketable contagious also words that are in this family of sort of metaphors, things like networking and connecting and conversations. There's a lot of scientists whose who's hair raises at these ideas. They, <laughs> they feel that, you know, there's this dangerous simplification going on. And, and yet yep. it's been my experience that communication necessarily to a degree simplifies because what I think a lot of experts miss is that the only person who's ever really going to exactly appreciate your work the way as you do is you so you have to figure out how to get it through to other people and that necessarily involves communication slash translation
1: yep um yes absolutely and they sort of i can easily understand that that yeah if if that the idea of marketing sounds a bit bad because then you can think of a paper that's sort of overly commercial and then very easily you enter or you go into a direction that that it's no longer entirely honest. You try to 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 maybe sell your results as something they are not. You try to overgeneralize you you write one of those papers that that are actually yeah that are actually not entirely honest. But but at the same time when you talk about something that's contagious and marketable, I I have more like the idea of clarity in mind, and that's something that every scientist can sort of, sort of sign to. That yes, clarity is good, right? But if 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 uh, if your paper is clear, if there's a lot of clarity, then it, it is more marketable and more contagious. It's easier to to have other people read it or get excited about it or tell others about it. So I think that's that's more the direction that that I try to to guide people to with this book.
0: And you provide so many great insights. It's so clear that you're working from within science. There's people who have written great guides who are scientists and who aren't scientists. Uh, you, met, you mentioned one of the are scientists, and that is Joshua Schimel as being also influential. Um, I've just recently interviewed him. Uh, the listeners are welcome to uh, check out the podcast. But what you provide as as a, an R scientist, I find, is that uh, just these wonderful insights, which are so helpful to people who want to help in the area of communication, or also people who are writing as young scientists. So this, this idea that you've just talked about, clarity and what it means, that idea that you bring up of primary transmission and secondary transmission, this idea that you've got on the one hand, the person who's reading it, and this is who us writing studies, people are always focused on the reader. And you're saying, yeah, but what about the guy or the girl, if you like, (laughs) in the hall who he is from somebody who's read it, the secondary transmission? That only happens when clarity is there. Yes,
1: that's correct. These ideas come, by the way, these come come from my background as a network scientist, because already in pre-COVID times, we did a lot of, we used, all of us have done a lot of Modeling of of the spreading of various contagious things from from viruses to ideas or networks and all that so so that probably comes from there because if you if you model such things uh, if you model the process of process of information spreading then then this is what you immediately realize that that you need to get if you if you want to have have an idea that have has an R number that's bigger than one, that where transmission keeps going on and and then you need to have something that is catchy, that people can can transmit it to others and hopefully they will transmit it to even more others and so on and so on. Yeah, so that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, it, I I think it is also clear that your uh, area of specialty networks clearly influenced a lot of what it is that um, you bring to writing, and and the advantages is just so clearly there. Again, I think of linearity versus modularity or the top down approach. I mean, this this problem that you ran into, which you described so vividly earlier, I don't know what to write, and then you came up with these ways, these these categories of thinking about it.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they yeah, probably yes. I, I, haven't actually thought of this myself before, but now that you mention it, yes, these ideas are probably influenced by complex systems thinking. Yes, they are.
0: And it's an Good advantage. Point. I mean, this is this is one of those perfect examples of you know multidisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, actually bringing fruits. Um, I've heard similar sorts of um, – when we talk about the linearity and the modularity of writing, linearity would be the sit down and just get started. The modularity would be breaking it all up into pieces and figuring out their order and then going about composing each of those pieces. The, the, just, just briefly to to give uh, an idea of what, what we're talking about here. I've, I've, I've heard it talked about in other – um, vocabulary. Valin Klinkenborg, who's who's written a fantastic guide about um, writing, talks about the experience of the reader versus the experience of the writer. Mm. So the experience of the reader is entirely linear. Yep. At least, uh, maybe outside of science, it's entirely linear. It maybe li- linear inside of science. Perhaps we can get to that. You talk about where readers are going to go in a text, <laughs> um, but the experience of a writer. One of the mistakes that writers make is that they think that. Like the reader, their experience mm. of the writing of the text need also be linear, and you're saying no. Just like Lynn Klinkerberg, no, it's 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 modular.
1: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct, and that's yeah. That's this is again a connection that I didn't see before, but this is probably where it comes from. Yes, that that when yeah, especially when an inexperienced writer starts to write, they think of they think like a reader. That's probably true and that leads to all sorts of problems like not knowing where this sentence is going to go because because then you don't know where this paragraph is going to go and and all all that so yes absolutely
0: mhm um and when you give us this more modular approach you use another wonderful analogy which is extremely helpful you talk about filmmaking Okay. Mm. So you've you've presented yourself as the producer in a rock band. This is probably also proof that this is an interesting read. This is a very obviously very well written book, but it's a book that you read quickly and get a lot out of. Um, The filmmaking uh, analogy also helps us write. Um, Is there any way that you could perhaps illustrate briefly just for listeners to get a taste of how that works, how this works?
1: Yeah, and that, this has to do with the with the story aspect of of, of a paper, and this is this is what Joshua Schimmel also writes about. So basically, you yes, a good paper is a story because that's a, a story is a format that we are all sort of used to. Stories are interesting; they keep us going; they they keep us wanting to hear what happens happens in the end, and if you. If you look at a good story, whether it's a book or whether it's film, where where basically film scripts, if especially if you look at Hollywood film scripts, they have a certain yeah they have a certain template, certain structure, certain flow, how things go. So you need to start first by sort of scene setting that that you introduce the characters, that these are the players, this is the world they inhabit, this is basically. This is where it's all going to happen, right? So that the the person who watches the film or the person who reads the scientific paper gets sort of familiar with 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 the surroundings, right? So that okay, this is this is where I'm. That's the world where I'm. I'm now located, and then you need to start building tension. Uh, in films, well, there are. Tons of ways of of how to do that. In science, tension is questions. So so basically, you show that there is something that's not known and that this matters, right? That that this question serves... (laughs) Answering this question serves some sort of a purpose. And we don't know what the answer is or we haven't known before what the answer is or that there are conflicting theories and all that. And then you build... Excitement, and then you bring the characters in a film to a point when there's this 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 final uh, resolution when when tension reaches its maximum. Then then you start battling Death Stars or, or whatnot. There is this uh, uh, release of tension in the end, and in in science, I think this would be basically basically the Providing all the evidence for your result, telling that this is my result, this is how the conflict is is resolved, this is how the questions are answered, and then typically in the film after that there is still a bit of a couple of minutes of, of something that that it doesn't Star Wars doesn't end when the Death Star explodes, but there's a couple of minutes where 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 uh, <laughs> these heroes get medals on that planet and or on that moon and and all that and in a paper you also need to kind of provide this this uh, feeling of okay this is what we know now so what happens next what's going to follow what what uh, what's going to follow from my results so that's like the sort of epilogue of 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 a paper so that's probably the analogy explained read it in the book it's much much more <laughs> much better explained there but anyway that's that's how it goes
0: no, I- indeed, please do read it in the book because it's given so many fantastic illustrations and it's, it's, it's just so convincing. You can see its value, its usefulness for really working through from that stack of results to, okay, I've got a message. I've got something to tell. You just too often hear the idea, right, tell a story, but but you tell people how to tell a story. And and, and this analogy broken down as it is in the book uh, really does achieve that. Um and one of, one of the things that really caught my attention was in the let's say confrontation stage right where where things become ooh I oh don't know worrisome there's something going wrong the tension builds there you talk about the research question being stated plainly right so you get out out in the open what it is that really is the problem Okay. And and I find that really interesting advice, very useful and, and, and clear advice. It's just so interesting, though, that it doesn't seem to be being done enough. Um, Bradley Alger, who has written um, The Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis, talks about there being in this area a sort of culture of evasion, at least in the biomedical sciences, where the... Question is subsumed, sort of covered. The actual hypothesis is not stated plainly. Um, Bethany Gray, who has done corpus studies, um, so statistical studies and of of, of uh, research articles, has found that indeed it's true. The 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 direct question from discipline to discipline shows up differently. Right? There are some sort of discipline specific conventions, but overall, it's not stated. As plainly as we would expect, and uh, I wonder what you would what you would st- say to this state of affairs. Yeah, I, I totally
1: agree. I mean, of course, there are fields of science that where science is hypothesis testing. Right, uh, you can't always do that. Physics, for example, is not hypothesis testing. You can't build theories that way. It's something entirely different. So, not all science can be can be formulated as hypothesis testing or or not. Everything in all science cases can be formulated. And in those sciences where hypothesis testing is not the norm and where it can't always even be used, I think there yes, yes, this is this is a problem that that is often there, that, that what the question that's being asked is is not entirely clear from the papers, and probably it hasn't been always entirely clear to the researchers either and so i think that's partially because finding good questions is extremely hard i think it's even harder than doing the research especially in fields that are sort of mature where a lot of scientific work has been done already and that's this is actually something that that i'm it's it's always in the Back of my head, if if I would, yeah, maybe I should write the next book, How to Find a Good Research Question. Uh, but I haven't figured that out myself yet, so I can't write the book about it. But yes, that's it's difficult. That's that's part of the reason. And then when people do research that doesn't have a very well-formulated, very clear question. Then the papers tend to look a bit like that as well. So yeah, I think and uh, yeah, I think the problem comes from it's not the papers, it's not having a well-defined research question to start with. And that probably has to do with yeah, with the fact that it's difficult and it takes time to come up with one. Sometimes it emerges from from your results, from your writing. You do stuff, then you see that ah. This is what I'm saying. So actually, this is the question I'm answering, but still, I think more time should be given to that question before one even starts. And that time can can look rather unproductive. You just sit there and you try to figure out what to what what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. And I I think that can be sort of yeah, it can feel a bit painful. That's that's maybe why people don't do enough of it.
0: Yeah, it's not the it's not a scientist perhaps normal modus to be just sort of staring out the window, yes. <laughs> P- pondering, is it? Um... It should be, but but these days it's less and
1: less. Yes, but of course when you write grants, then you need to have very, very precise questions. The thing is that those are normally not not those are not necessarily sort of real questions that you actually <laughs> ask in your research. There was this saying that I heard from one, one fellow professor that. There the is funding, and then there's science, and the two shall never meet.
0: So, <laughs> Very good. Or not. <laughs> At least amusing. Um, I'd love your idea of how to find a research question. I, I do hope that you find your way to that book as you found your way to how to write a scientific paper. I think we would all learn quite a lot uh, by that, because... Um, it's this is perhaps one of those stupid outsider observations. Uh, me being a non-scientist, but when I look at the setup of the typical research article, and I look at the developments that are going on, for instance, the highlights page or the or the highlights list, or you know the diagram that gives you sort of a quick overview as to what it is that happens here or has been found here. You know, these are these are new additions to many um, research articles, and sometimes I wonder what would be better, more new additions and innovations or, let's say, more consistent use of the aspects that we've already got. So f- what I have in mind, for instance, is the title. Wouldn't the title be the perfect place to state your hypothesis? <laughs> <laughs> yes, often it would. I agree. <laughs> It just makes me wonder because it's one of those, because you give us this fantastic view of the abstract, which is not a view that I would say, you know, the, let's say the the majority, I would say at least half Mm -hmm. of, of writers out there and scientists necessarily have, which is that it is by no means a summary. Yeah. It is actually the, it's sort of the messenger, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. uh, does does that ring true to you
1: Yes, absolutely absolutely so yeah it's not not as like a summary it's it's the essence of the paper it's 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 sort of the magic that's there it's it's that is the story and then everything is just an expanded version of it
0: in a way that's really great stuff yeah yeah and and, and what i find also interesting is the you spend a phenomenal amount of time and and, and it just shows also the importance on the results on the figures and areas in the results. I mean, all of this talk that you have there about how to interrogate your results, how to make something of them, how to know where to go with them. Some of it involves staring out, out the window, which mm-hmm. is okay. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that that might be valuable. <laughs> some of it also is collaborative. I think I think all of that is great. What you say also about the introduction, I find- Really helpful. So this breakdown as to its its shape, where it might begin. Um, I've spoken with uh, someone who's uh, a rhetorician, and 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 she, Brooke Rollins, has said that actually in the ancient rhetoric tradition, um, an introduction isn't really part of the speech. That would be the normal case in rhetoric, but we can just say hmm. part of the paper. And it really got me thinking, and and it got me thinking when I read what you had to say about the introduction. The introduction is probably better titled The Contextualization, isn't it?
1: That's how I view it, yes. So it's kind of, yes, absolutely. It It tells why this paper exists, right? That's basically the function of the introduction. It tells why this paper exists, why... Does it matter, and who should be interested in it? Sort of. So it's yeah, it's it's something that, that you could even think that it's not part of the actual paper. The paper is what follows. So yes, it's it's not the sort of a... sales pitch of the paper. It's more like yeah, contextual contextualization. Yes,
0: absolutely. And this is really interesting because the typical approach that I see, and this is also going on in the abstract. This is why I find that your advice is. It's really so fresh and also so helpful that the typical approach to the abstract and to the intro are to summarize, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and you're giving an entirely different view. You essentialize in the one and in the other contextualize, right? Why do we have which is following now this mm-hmm. study? Yeah, I mean this yes, this is yes. great stuff. Yep, yep, yep. And that's also
1: now and that's related to the films film. Script analogy, so that this is this is the setup, so that this this is where you where you show the characters and you show the world, and and provide some hints as to why this world is interesting. Right?
0: You have interesting things to say also about the discussion. <laughs> in fact, I think the one that jumped out at me most, and I and I have to quote this, is the borderline insane separation of the results from the discussion, which is <laughs> one among many of the different field-specific conventions that come out in the book. Um, what you're trying to offer in the book is very clearly a writing help assistance to any scientist and you'd pay due attention though to as you say these, these field specific conventions. So the, the the book is helpful for really anyone out there in any of the sciences. Um, but to get back to my point, this borderline insane separation of the results and the discussion, that jumped out at me. I typically work <laughs> with biologists and that's normal for them. But uh what what leads you to that assessment?
1: <laughs> no, this I think this <laughs> this is frustration after writing with my students, uh, one of the network neuroscience papers that we've done. And in that field, there is this super clear uh, separation between results and discussion. And then there's general discussion at the end. Now, if you have a lot of results, say you have a paper that makes a point through three to five different results and then then you write it so that first you you present result 1 that's like half a page to one page then result 2 then result 3 and then after that many pages you start discussing the importance of, of these results so it's like uh, it's it's for a human reader this is i think this is really difficult on one hand it's sort of i understand the logic from the honesty and integrity of science point of view, that these results are just data. That's that's all that, that you have. That's data. And then you separate the interpretation. But if there's like a gap of four pages between the data and the interpretation, and then there are other results in between, just impossible to write, it's impossible to read because the human mind doesn't really work that way, in my view. And that's why, for example, in and say the type of computational sciences network science physics things that I I've, I've worked in it's much more common to basically present results and then immediately interpret them as you go but in that case you need to make sure that you kind of uh, signpost that this is interpretation that this is this is this is my view on what those numbers mean but yeah it's just this This structure where you separate things really far is super annoying. It's a bit like often we get papers to review where the figures are at the end and maybe you have separate captions at the end as well. And it's just, yeah, my my brain just melts every time I need to jump across eight pages to get to the figure that was referred to in this paragraph. It's a bit of the same.
0: It, it's hardly surprising then if, if you take such a sort of consistent follow through on the the IMRD, the MRAD structure, yeah, that the we've got, as you say, clearly data on the one hand, the results, and we've got interpretation on the other hand. It's hardly surprising then that writers approaching it feel the heavy formality involved because what, what you're saying is the human approach <laughs> is to bring these things together. I mean, that's what we're doing, isn't it? We set up the methods – we find the results, and in the same moment as we're getting the results, we're trying to understand them. That—that's—that's that's what you do, right? That's what you do, yeah. And if you, if you would
1: be chatting with a colleague, w- would you ever first like I don't know explain three different results in an excruciating amount of detail, right? And then you start talking about why 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 they matter. Then only then the other person understands why you were even talking about these results. It's it's not how we. It's yeah. It's it's not how our brains wire,
0: and it's probably one of another one of those cases where it's worth, you know, sort of considering. Well, what are the formats that we write in? How are they serving us, and how not?
1: That's correct, and and this is something that that of course nowadays we have all these different new things that were not there when. Papers were still papers, not online entities that you have the supplementary materials and all that. But I think that process is still sort of going on because you could easily, easily have the best of both worlds, right? You could you could present you could keep data and and its interpretation separate by right first first in in the sort of main text having, say having a section that mixes both but that has pointers to, to some supplementary that has all the details of, of the data so that yeah the, you could use these different networks of files that, that point to one another in ways that is not yet happening it's much more yeah much more like you have a paper and then you have an appendix which is the SI but you could have something more I, I agree.
0: Yeah that's interesting because i mean uh, editors everywhere and 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 even people outside of publishing are thinking about these things and it's i think it's really important that you know the conversation happen because that's where ideas generate and uh yeah we need to think what what serves best the reporting of the research and not stick necessarily to conventions that perhaps hamper that as you've made very clear results and discussion are one thing that's going on i mean if there is a part of the Apart from the introduction, and then we've 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 talked about that in a way that I think is very helpful to, to to listeners. But if there's another part of the paper that typically scares away authors, that is the discussion. And I think part of this tearing apart from the results, I mean, one of the first questions I get often when I'm doing my consultations at the university is, am I supposed to repeat in short form the entire results at the head of the discussion? <laughs> Which already shows the, 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 the closeness of these two.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I think discussion is, is I think when writing this book, writing the chapter on the discussion section was the most challenging one for me and because i think for for an intro it's easy to come up with a template that this is what an intro has to do this discussion depends so much on how much has been discussed before the discussion (laughs) in relationship to to the results section and all that so that's that's a bit more difficult and and then because you are yeah your discussion is this often it it's it's sort of like a swiss knife it has so many purposes you need to somehow recap so you need to summarize a bit because that's what you that's what that's what a good d- teacher does at the end of a lecture that you kind of summarize the key points so that the listener remembers them so you need to do a bit of that and then you need to give them more context and then you need to tell what Follows from your results and and what doesn't follow from your results and typically in the discussion you also talk about the limitations which is something that that by the way rather many students kind of take feel that the idea of the discussion section is to discuss mainly about mainly talk about limitations which is sort of at least in Finland people <laughs> my students tend to feel that way that yes okay let's 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 write three paragraphs on. On limitations, which is not necessarily a very nice way of ending a paper, because and as and as I say in the book, it's very good to have limitations discussed whenever they are relevant. So already in the myth, methods re- results, where even introduction, wherever you 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 kind of tell what you are doing, you need to be honest about what you are not doing at the same time. So not not leave like a, leave them to the last paragraph of your discussion and then if again if you think in terms of a story then you want to have a happy ending right so you want to have a discussion that when you read that final sentence you feel sort of uplifted you feel that, that that this has ended on a high note you get energy from the last sentence and it should not be that more research is definitely needed never use that last sentence because that's 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 the opposite so you need to say something in the end that kind of rings in the minds of, of the reader. So yeah, it's this custom section serves rather many purposes. So that's why it's a difficult piece, in my view.
0: And I think that's, that's just so fantastic, the, the treatment that you give it in the book, because it comes out clearly, I, at one point I think you even say directly, that there is a, a, a high level of freedom to shape the discussion, which already is useful information, I think, for authors, because they you know they an author who's made his or her way through the methods and the results probably feels a little bit shackled by the time they get to the, by the time they get to the discussion they feel like okay and what am i supposed to do now and 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 you make it very clear that uh, two things come out very clear to me first off this this freedom to shape use it to your advantage here the rhetoric comes rolling in and even just as you've said the expression comes rolling in i yes. mean it matters how you put things yes Yep, yep, yep. So, yes, probably
1: this section is where you have your most creative
0: freedom. That's absolutely correct. Um, Two two sort of things that I I certainly wanted to touch on with you here uh, was the things that you have to say about the writing process, which I found fascinating, and how the writing process can actually be used. And this, this brings us back all the way back to our first question of, well, so why isn't it that communication skills or other soft skills aren't being supported enough? I mean, you, you really make the case for write, the writing process being part of the research process because in, for example, outlining, you show up holes in your argumentation or the impossibility of getting out an idea in one particular paragraph might be a message to you. That there is, it's it's not a problem in the writing, it's a problem in the science. Um, I mean, these sorts of things very clearly show us that writing and research go hand in hand.
1: That's correct. That's correct. Because, yes, there is this feedback loop. And that's, I, I think, somewhere in the book, I also encourage that even if you can't, even if you don't figure out what what your story should be or what your abstract should be or what what, what results to put in, you can then just sort of play a game of, okay. I'll pick this so this I'll pick this result let's see what I can do about it let's let's see what I can write about it let's see how I can make that work and when you do that then yes you may notice that okay this piece here this piece of information is missing or or this is not convincing or then you may actually make connections that you didn't think of before so there is always this this feedback loop and I repeat as I, as I said already earlier I think it's when something feels difficult it's always a message then it's then as a student very often then you start feeling like frustrated and i don't want to do this i i'll i'll rather go on my favorite social media or get a cup of coffee or something and then 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 i'll try again i'll try harder see if this works but always when there's pain it's a message when there is when you feel that something is difficult, then I think one should start sort of searching one's own soul. So what makes this difficult? What am I missing? Is there something that 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 blocks me here? What's that piece of information? Is it that I don't know something or 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 do I need to get back and search for some more knowledge and information or or maybe I can't Contextualize things. I need to look up things in literature. I need to do a bit of reading. But but I think this is this is always a good idea to to yes search your soul and try to figure out what it is that is creating this block somewhere.
0: Also, advice that you give um, when talking about the review process. Another one of the areas, the editorial process, is also covered in the book. In the review process. Clearly, criticism is one of those things that none of us swallow very well. <laughs> and um, I think just along the lines that you're saying right now, you can gain so much from criticism when something is picked out as being hard to understand or perhaps irrelevant. It's a moment for you to do just a, what you've said. Okay, there, this is this is painful. You don't want to face it. But what if there was something in it? Just entertain the idea. What if there was actually something in it? You might have a chance there to sharpen your story, to do this or that. Exactly, exactly. And it may be something that's sort of, that's sort of
1: trivial in that you simply have forgotten to mention something. And this is one of the most difficult parts of being a writer of science, especially for, for students, is that, that it's hard to realize what others know or don't know. And typically, the way this goes is that, that students tend to think that everyone else knows everything, which is normally not the case. And that's why they don't necessarily even explain all things in you know, detail. So, But that's sort of trivial to fix, just sort of put in those details, explain it better. Or then this may really be a hole in your argumentation. This may be something that you haven't considered, and that, that may require a lot of further thought, maybe, maybe revising the entire paper, maybe, maybe writing another paper, realizing that this was not the paper that, that you wanted to go for. So so going back to the beginning of this whole iterative process. But yes, so so you can often learn a lot from those criticisms. And then it's also important to remember that sometimes you don't, that that reviewers may be wrong. That happens. That very often happens, and then you need to just sort of politely argue and try to understand what's going on in their minds. I think that's important. Sort of the psychological aspect of this is important. That you try to figure out what it is that bothers them and, and how to make them feel better. If if it's something that's not clearly about science or or, or clarity or things like that.
0: The advice you give there in the book uh, on the review process is, in a book that's already so great, worth the book alone. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, it, and it is really uh, a point that I've, 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 I've struck with other um, editors of journals and so on. The It's probably not getting out there enough, and this brings us back to the soft skills training, that science is a social process. Yes, you Absolutely. You're, and your points about the psychology of reviewers are just so pertinent there.
1: Yeah, so this is, yeah, science and all communication is a process where one person tries to transmit some information to the brain of another. So you try to try to convince someone else with something. You try to make, you try to Try to make them understand your point of view. And, and if you want to do that, and if there's, there's an argument, like in science very often, happens not, not just between writers and reviewers, but in conferences between team members, all that, you, you need to somehow take the other person into account. Try to understand why they think as they think and behave as, as they behave. So it's not just the cold facts, it's the other person as well. So yes, soft skills, absolutely. And this is something that I think it's even harder to, to, to teach, probably.
0: And perhaps also to make it more understandable why it matters, just to sort of flip the perspective, and again, I'm speaking as an outsider, so it could be one of those dumb things that I say, but it's... If you, exactly. The, the hard, cold facts, right? Scientists tend to you know, gravitate towards the numbers, toward the figure, toward the results that are measurable. And that's all well and good. They wouldn't get anywhere if they didn't. I'm certainly not trying to tell them to do it any differently. But to think for a moment that actually science is driven by questions, which logically leads to the fact that there is always something we don't know. If you don't know, then you have to convince if you have to convince you enter into social relationships
1: yes absolutely yes science is not ever done in isolation it's always you are always embedded in in a network of scientists so being a network scientist this is this is <laughs> from my perspective this is really clear there's a network of of scientists who's are, who that sort of transmits all these ideas and it's your job to basically send your ideas out there and, and see how they how they are reshaped by the community. And so it's, it's always a two-way street. You also need to understand the others in order to be able to do this, to transmit your ideas and to convince others. And then you learn something from it and you always gain something from it.
0: Well, uh, Jari, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. I do have one last question, and this is also... Something that's uh, rather close to my heart that you bring up at different times in the book, you 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 talk about writers and even scientists as figure makers and even scientists as researchers learning to enable themselves, observing how other people do it, asking the right questions about an introduction that they've read or about the captions or the color coding in a, in a figure. And I, I, I wholeheartedly can agree with this approach of figuring out on your own, th- sort of through immersion, if you like. And, and I wanted to ask, do you think that so much is rather moving towards the training aspect of teaching students and showing them directly, maybe a consequence of the fact that we're not in our education system, maybe even early on putting enough value on people themselves, the students or the pupils themselves, learning to witness, to think, to notice things on their own, to even in academic areas, to care about what it is that they actually care about.
1: Mm, that's an interesting point of view, but probably probably so. Yes, because you can learn a lot by observing, by imitating, by by looking at things and asking questions and this is this is again this is something that you you kind of you need to decide to do. So you can read a paper so that you just read it and try to get the science out of it or then you can start reading it as if you would want to write a similar paper so that you look at its structure, its sentences you kind of try to try to absorb all this information that is in its structure, but you need to know that that there is this method. So, so maybe, yes, maybe as teachers, we should try to point this out, point students to this direction that next time when you read a paper, forget about the science, but try to look at the sentences and, and the paragraphs, write, write like a one sentence summary of each paragraph and then observe how this whole thing has been structured. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, yes, we should definitely encourage our students to to do more of this. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you very much. That is Jari Makey and his book, How to Write a Scientific Paper, is out since 2018. I'm Daniel Shea and this is goodbye from me to Jari. Goodbye. Goodbye and thanks for having me. This was a very nice discussion. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.